Hey, thanks everyone for joining us for a special simulcast edition of our Big Time Talker podcast and Zoom into books with our friends from Headline Books. Special thanks to our show sponsor, SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. Finally, the pandemic is somewhat in the back door and, and as we look at it in the rearview mirror, in-person meetings and conferences are happening again. If you are a platform speaker or maybe you're a meeting planner, you can log on to speakermatch.com and find one another. Thanks, Speaker Match, for sponsoring today's guest, Roger Smith. His first book is The Most Unlikely Leader, an unbelievable journey from GED to CEO. And boy, there's a lot to unpack in this story. It's available from ballastbooks.com, online at bookstores everywhere. Roger Smith, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here today. Thank you so much, Mark. I, I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, looking forward to it. Thank you. So in these things, we like to begin in the beginning. And in the beginning for you, you're a New York City kid, but not a New York City kid that uh, that grows up with a silver spoon in your mouth, necessarily. Things are not good in, in Gotham City for a young Roger Smith. Take me back to your childhood in, in the Big Apple. Um, so... You know, I think that uh, at, I was talking to somebody the other day and I was talking about how I used to like walk across from the west side to the east side. Uh, I'd have a trombone in my hand that I was playing and, you know, I'd get two, three times a year mugged for the trombone. And we were talking, I was saying, you know, back then it wasn't it, it, it wasn't so rare to just have kids wandering around. You know, today, it's a whole different story. So, you know, from the time that I can remember, I, I was always hustling for a book. You know, I, I would steal my brother's comic books and sell them in, you know, in Central Park. And um, we, as a family, uh, we came, my mother was a single head of household. And so we didn't have a lot. And then she ended up uh, marrying my stepfather my original father went to jail when I was three years old. So and you had no relationship really with your, your biological dad. No, no, not at all. His second father, Andy Smith, uh, had his own company and was doing very well. Uh, and then it went bankrupt. And so we went from living in a brownstone house in Manhattan to moving. And at that time, when families went bankrupt on the East Coast, they moved as far west as they could move. And we moved in a station wagon uh, across country to Malibu. And, and how old were you now? I read the book, but how old were you for the folks that haven't? Uh, I was, uh, let's say, eight or nine years old by, by the time that we moved to Malibu. And at that point, you had, as you said, run around New York City as a little, little kid you know, reselling things and, and by yourself, nobody with you. Yes. Yeah. When you look back on that now. Is that just a crazy notion to think that a little six, seven year old, eight year old kid is running around the streets of New York? Yes, <laughs> it is. You know, uh, my therapist would call that abandonment, but I'm not <laughs> that's the case. <laughs> wow. So, so Andy's business goes under things go bad for Andy, even when you get to California. So the California you land in 
is not necessarily the California of Bel Air and mansions and palm trees at all. Yeah, Malibu back then was just apartment beach shacks. We must have lived in 12 different places. Not one of them is still there. You know, they've all been raised down. And you had uh, two siblings, right? There's you and a, a brother and a sister. Brother and a sister. And at that time, uh, my mom had divorced from Andy. So now it was back to her just trying to provide a living. You know, it was my, uh, at one point, it was my brother, sister, and myself living in one room and my mother in the living room. And then later on, uh, you know, it was my brother and I in one room, my sister in another room. And my mom still stayed in the living room for quite some time. So, yeah, it wasn't... Um, it, it, it wasn't the best. And, and it was a time where, where I was trying to find my tribe, Burke, you know, it was like, it's an interesting thing. I was a really good kid, like up until the time that I was 14 years old. And, and when I was 14, I was in the, uh, I was the star of the musical carousel. I was in the, uh, uh, wood, woodworking club, the chess club. I was a good kid. And then that summer, uh, a, a flip just switched. And uh, it was, it, I went from that to within a year later, being homeless, a drug addict, and a high school dropout. It was a pretty drastic change. The cheese slid completely off your cracker in no time. Yes. Um, and it's amazing in reading this book. And by the way, the book, of course, is the most unlikely leader because Roger went on to do some pretty amazing things in his career from pretty rough beginnings. It's amazing to me in reading the book, Roger, that it didn't go sideways for you, frankly, earlier because you didn't have, you know, a relationship with your biological dad. Um, Andy, who had been successful in New York, became unsuccessful and was not the greatest role model. Uh, he was actually pretty self-destructive there towards the end. You learned lessons from him that, that maybe were not the best lessons. So the fact that you even had it together for a while is pretty amazing. But, but when, when it went bad for you, it went really bad. And, and I wonder for folks that are watching, because this is a story about uh, your successes and your failures. And you're a guy of peaks and valleys like a few other, when it started to go bad for you, did you have an inkling uh, or the foresight at 14, 15 years old? I, I have a, a really serious addictive personality or was it just, you know, I'm a party kid and I'm going to party really hard. And you didn't, you, you didn't have the foresight because most people at 14, 15 wouldn't be able to put those two things together. Did you know that you had that gene? No. No, I didn't know. I mean, it, it, it moved so quick and I was in it so deep, so quick that, you know, at, at that point, it, it really just became about surviving. And it probably stayed that way for many, many years after that. But yeah, it was, it was just about surviving, surviving the streets and, you know, doing whatever I needed to do to uh, put food in my mouth and find shelter and, you know, do those things. And, and you juxtapose that with what most people who are watching and listening think about Southern California and Santa Monica and Malibu. 
but you paint a very dark and different picture. How low did it get for you as a teenager? What was the bottom for you in all that time? Yeah, I, you know, unfortunately, I wish I had reached my bottom uh, <laughs> at that time and started to change, but I did it. But I, I think that reality started to uh, come to play. Uh, my friend and I were walking down the street and uh, he ended up like throwing a trash can, trash can through a pawn shop window and grabbing a watch or something. And all of a sudden we're running down the street and it was the middle of the night, but the pawn shop owner was there and he ended up uh, shooting my friend in the back and, um, you know, and, and I kept on running. And so, you know, looking back at it, I sit there and go, you know, there, but by the grace of God, go I. I mean, right. there many times that, that things could have gone so bad. And, you know, I just, I consider it a blessing that, that I'm alive, that I've had the success that I've had, because I can't figure out another reason for it, you know? <laughs> Your older brother actually had his life together pretty well. And, uh, and I wonder as a kid, if you looked at him and thought, well, gosh, he can do that. Why can't I do it? Did that thought ever enter your mind? You know, it was an interesting thing. You said I, I never had a relationship with my real dad, except that when I started to get in trouble, really bad trouble, my mom reached out to him and asked him to come out and talk to me. So yeah, boy, and did that make it even worse, right? You know, you talk about you talk about allowing stuff into your mind. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't mature enough or old enough to to be able to block out that stuff, and it just stayed in there and it simmered. So, to answer your question, no, I never thought that I could be like them because I never had the self esteem to know that oh, I could and that I was as intelligent and you know and all those things. Roger's book is the most unlikely leader. Roger Smith went on to a very successful career in the C-suite uh, for some uh, life insurance agencies that we've all heard of uh, from very tough beginnings. All right, so so uh, high school in Southern California, not a big priority for Roger Smith. No, no, it wasn't. Um, I got kicked out of high school in my first three months because uh, they wanted me to wear socks with my sandals. And of course, out of principle, I wasn't going to allow them to tell me what I could wear and how I could wear. It's the man. The man had his boot on your neck, Roger. It was the man. That's exactly right. And I was I was going to stick it to the man. But sticking it to me is what I did. But, um, um, your addictions in the beginning... And I, I do want to talk about that some uh, as bad as it got, and it got a lot worse. Um, what what was the first thing that you could not stop consuming that you couldn't put down? Um, so I started on on what was called um, uh, toluene, and it was like it was like sniffing glue, but they used it as a solution to clean off barnacles off a ship. So, I mean, that was, that was kind of the start of it. 
and um, and then it moved very quickly. I had a friend who ended up working on the docks at one of the uh, at Santa Monica Hospital, and so he was grabbing, stealing, taking, um, you know, morphine um, uh, vials. So then we moved on to morphine. And so it was morphine, heroin, uh, downers, you know, that was, that was kind of my life there for about three or four years. Then it moved the other way. Then it moved the exact opposite to like cocaine, amphetamines. <laughs> Went from downers to uppers is what the... <laughs> At some point in this this whole downward spiral, uh, Andy and your mom are no longer together. So she gets with another guy. And this guy uh, is in the insurance business. Right. And he introduces you to that business. And that, you know, for lack of a better term, becomes a lifeline to you. Yes. Walk us through... Um, where you were at this time of sort of darkest despair and then this introduction to this new man in your mom's life. So uh, Mike actually running um, maybe like eight months uh, before I started and he was really successful. I mean, this guy, he, he was the ultimate closer, the ultimate salesperson and he said, Roger, do you want to come in? He said, I think you'd be really good at it. And I didn't want to embarrass him. And I, and I thought, you know what, let me try it someplace else first. And if I'm okay there, then I'll go. So I remember uh, it sold to seniors. And I remember trying to give a presentation. And in California at that time, you know, the, the, you had like glass doors, right? Glass patio doors was the actual door. And I remember trying to give the presentation, you know, through the plate glass <laughs> and, and they wouldn't let me in. And I'm trying to give the presentation. In the middle of the presentation, I close it up and I walk away and I go, man, if this is what sales is about, I, I'm not, this isn't going to work for me. As it ended up, you know, Mike kept on pushing on me and, uh, and I tried it. And, and I got to tell you, Burke, I was horrible at it. I was horrible at it. I, you know, there are natural born salespeople out there. There are natural born leaders. There's natural born CEOs. I was none of those. I, all, everything that I became was learned behavior. When I used to give a presentation in the beginning, I was so scared of the close. And they say, you know, when you close, uh, just be quiet. Wait for the other person to talk, right? Right, right. During those moments, which seemed like hours to me, the back of my neck would start to shake. And I literally thought that people thought that I was having some type of seizure. I mean, <laughs> I was so bad. I was so bad at it. But I was willing to work really, really hard until I could get comfortable with it. And that's what happened. And, and actually, I became the number one salesperson that first year. And this is hardcore sales. This was roughly what your early 70s, late 60s, this was going on out there? 74, 75. Yeah. 70. I remember that era. And I remember door-to-door um, -door salesmen, you know, would come to, to your house to try to sell you, you know, I was a kid then, vacuum cleaners or encyclopedias. And you're essentially trying to do that 
with life insurance, as you said, you know, through the screen door or through the sliding glass door with senior citizens and you're bad at it. Nobody wants to be sold door to door, even in the mid seventies and the door gets slammed in your face over and over again. Um, You know, I, I can't imagine what kind of school uh, that must've been for you. Was there a breakthrough though, where you began to, to build confidence? Yeah. So remember that, that, that was another insurance company I started with that I said, no, no, no. So I went with American income, American incomes market was the union market. It was the labor market. So then it was a much easier sell for you. It was, you were working off of what was supposedly an endorsed lead. So yeah, it, it, it allowed you to get into the home. It allowed you to get your knees under the table with mom and pop at, you know, at the kitchen table. And then it was a matter of learning how to, how to close. Um, I think a breakthrough moment for me was they had a monthly magazine. And at some point, I made it like in the top 50. And from that point on, I literally had that sheet on the mirror of my bathroom and I would cross off the person right ahead of me. You know, it was like, it was like a hit list. And I'd keep on crossing off, kept on moving up, crossing off, moving up till I was number one. But I really do think that it was the repetitive while other people were doing four or five presentations in a day, I was doing and willing to do nine or 10 presentations in a day. So I think it was that breakthrough moment that said, hey, if I work really hard at something, I think I can overcome the, the obstacle, no matter what it is. And there's a lot in this book about, you know, overcoming obstacles. And for you, I mean, even at a really early age, you know, you had failed a lot and a lot of things. Part of it was addiction. Part of it was, you know, I'm sure pride, teenage pride. Um, but, but you say in the book, and I thought this was interesting, you know, failure isn't the end of the road. It's more of a bump in the road. And for you, this, this is not a small bump. But uh, for folks that are watching and listening, what do you mean by that? Failure isn't the end of the road. It's a bump in the road. So I think what happens is we have a choice to make. If, if we hit an obstacle, and, and it seems like an insurmountable obstacle, but we overcome it, we persevere. Then later on through life, we look back and go, it's a bump in the road. But if we stop our journey right then, then, then we're making the decision that it's a failure. You know, the other part of that is that we're not married to our decisions. Well, sometimes but 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 we're not married to the yeah, to the decision. So if you make a bad decision, make a new one. And I think what happens with people with their fear of failure is they're they're married to the to the decision, and they think they're just stuck that way for the rest of their life. You're not stuck that way for the rest of your life. Bad decision, make a new one. Keep on going down the road. You know. Roger Smith is the author of The Most Unlikely Leader, uh, and he went from literally living on the street to being the CEO of huge companies like American Income Life and Liberty National. However, as good as it's going for you, you know, you finally get it together, so to speak, 
you're really good at, you know, sales and it gets you all the way to the corner office and you got success and you got money, but really that was like pouring gasoline on the fire for you from an addiction standpoint. Yeah. So um, at that point, I owned my own insurance agency under, under, with the same company. And uh, unfortunately, I was a really good functioning addict. You know, I, I, I could do a lot of drugs and I could still, you know, do very well in business. Though, in reality, it wasn't sustainable which is why if you read in the book, you'll see I moved around quite a lot. Yeah. Because it wasn't sustainable for any, you know, for any long period of time. So um, yeah, it, it's, I, I did very, very well. For a very short amount of time at a lot of places. Yeah. And I think that, you know, if that inside picture of yourself, my inside picture of myself was not good. You know, it was going to be, I was going to die alone, an addict, you know, possibly homeless. I mean, all these things, that was my picture. And so if that inner picture is bad like that, it, it just keeps on becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. And until you change that inner picture, the, you know, not the picture that you portray, but the one that's deep, deep inside that only you know about, you know, until you change that, um, it, it's not a pretty picture at all. Or at least it wasn't for me. There was a lot of stinking thinking going on for you. Um, yeah, like Sid says. <laughs> that's exactly right. And, and, you know, understandably so. You hear a lot of people that, that were involved in drugs back then in the 70s and the 80s. Oh, it was a different time. It was, everybody was doing it. I wonder when you hear that. Uh, what you think, because it was a different time and you were certainly doing it and you weren't the only one, but is that a crutch? Uh, I think so. I mean, yes, everybody was doing it and there were a lot of lives that were destroyed during that time. You know, I, unfortunately, uh, I do have that extremist personality. I do have that addictive personality. So I'm sure that there were people that could go out on a weekend and party and that was it. That wasn't me. Right. You know, my, my party was every single day. So, yeah. Now, is it, is it true? And, and you sort of allude to this in the book that you spent more money on drugs than you could make, even though you were making a crap ton of money as the CEO of these companies. Did you yeah. really spend it faster than you could? Yeah. So, so I want to get the timing right on this. So I wasn't the CIO, CEO. I wasn't, um, I wasn't corporate yet. I was like, like an agency owner. I owned my own insurance agency. Right. Yeah, the, you're right. There are, there are periods of badness that continue on in different levels all over the place. That's I right. I don't think I ever would have made it to a CEO level if I hadn't, you know, become clean. Because you have to realize, Murph, there's a, as much energy as it takes to be an addict, there's a lot of energy. Unfortunately, it's all negative. Right. And, and if you're sober, you can take that same energy that you're putting out and move it into a positive way. And it's amazing. It's amazing how far you can go, how quick you can move up, all of those things. So... 
Yeah, I mean, the, the, the addict part of me or the part when I was addicted to drugs, um, yeah, that never would have gotten me to the corner suite <laughs> at all. The, uh, the signs, and in, in you, you touched on this a little bit, that you were a, a functioning addict, a high-functioning addict. Yes. And you hear that term a lot where people can, you know, wake up no matter what the night was like before and still, you know, do well during the next day. I think that, you know, my ability to burn the candle at both ends was was a pretty big sign of that. You know, yeah. I could, you know, be up all night or half the night or whatever, and then all of a sudden be recruiting and interviewing people the next day and, you know, and doing that. And um, I, I think that's the biggest sign is that you, you, you're able to do a lot and and keep it functioning at some level. Um, and that just tells you that, yeah, that's that's where you are. Uh, I will tell you that that when um, crack cocaine was introduced into society, um, that brought me to my knees quick. That brought me to my knees quick. After years, 20 years of addiction, a year on crack cocaine, you know, was just cocaine on steroids. And that that really, you know, that became my 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 downfall and also my savings, you know. You um the book, by the way, the most unlikely leader is brand new from Roger Smith. So you've got a lot of people listening, a lot of people who are watching that have not read the book yet. We talked earlier about, you know, the fact that you were homeless and living on the street as a teenager in California really wasn't rock bottom for you. As rock bottom as he as it sounds. It got worse. What was Roger Smith's rock bottom? My rock bottom, uh, and I, you know, I keep this image in the front of my mind all the time because I never, ever, ever want to go back there. But I was on all fours. I was living in a, in a little cottage in Malibu at that time. And I'm on all fours for hours looking, picking through the carpet looking for maybe a sliver of crack that I might have dropped into the rug. And, and this went on for hours. And I just thought, if, if this is where my life is, if this is what the way it's going to be, then, then I'd rather just end it. And, and I literally walked downstairs, started walking into the ocean and, um, and try to kill yourself. Remember God talking to me. I don't, but as you know, I don't know what else to say about it except that I was blessed and I didn't continue walking into the ocean. And uh, and I went into rehab the next day. And by the way, finding a rehab back then was not easy. You know, it's not like today where there are rehabs all over the place. Right. Three or four in California you know, that, that I could go to. And I ended up going all the way in the Northern California to, to go to that rehab. And what year was that when, when you walked out into the ocean in the dark and, uh, and tried to kill yourself and, you know, stopped yourself at the last minute? So that was in uh, 1985, towards the end of 1985. And in, I, if I have my math right in the book, it was less than 10 years and you're CEO 
of one of the most you know respected insurance companies not only in america in the world stone cold sober so it didn't take you long once you got clean to get it together that's what i'm talking about that's that that energy yeah if you can take that energy and move it into something productive um you know, and stay sober, <laughs> you got a really good chance of having some great, great things happen in your life. What was rehab like for you back then? Rehab in 1985. Paint that picture. Um, actually, it was it was interesting. It was in, in wine country. <laughs> it's actually where it was. So it was beautiful and it was peaceful. And, you know, and, and people were serious about getting clean. You know, it right. was everybody was working really, really hard to, uh, to work the program and stay clean. I remember when I got out, Burke, one of the things that I did is I realized that I had years and years and years of habits yeah. that you know, created that addiction or, or was with the addiction. So when I got out, like if I used to put my right shoe on first, I would put my left shoe on first. I literally went so basic, you know, if I was brushing my teeth right hand, I'm going to do it. My left. I'm going to do the opposite of everything that I was doing before because I wanted to break all those habits. And I was so scared of relapsing. I'm going, man, I've just got to become a different person. Um, if someone who's, is listening or watching right now, because I do want to spend some time talking about the leadership portion of the book um and they're struggling or or they know someone maybe they love someone who is struggling maybe they're a functioning addict or maybe like you on crack cocaine maybe they're crawling around on the carpet looking for a nugget what would you say to them on how to get help right away what's what's the first step well um the first step is they they've got to realize that it's their bottom because if they don't, it's just going to repeat and repeat and repeat. Um, I do think that, you know, getting somebody into rehab, being able to get, you know, have, have a clear mind so they, that they can process what's going on, I, I think is so important. And then I think you know, what's even more important than, than going into rehab is what happens after. So, you know, it's the service work. It's going out to hospitals and talking to new people that have just gone into rehab. And, and so not only are you helping other acts, but you're reliving the experience yourself when you're telling your story. And if you can do that and keep that up front of you, that's what I, you know, I started to say early on. That picture of where I was stays right up front of my mind because I don't ever want to go back. And if, if they can go through the rehab process, do acts of service, keep that picture in front of their mind, change their habits, then they're going to have a good chance of, of, of not relapsing. And, and if they can just get some hope and some faith, you know, that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book, Burke, is, is to give people hope and faith. That's, right. this, this guy could do it. I can do it no matter where I am, no matter where I'm stuck in my life. You know, one of the things that really comes through this book, by the way, um, uh, The Most Unlikely Leader by Roger Smith, Roger really is an everyman. He's an everyday guy. 
if if not the most unlikely guy to be a CEO, he is the kind of guy that that you would see, uh, you know, at the gas station or at the barber shop, or your buddy who's a welder or a plumber or a pipe fitter, uh, and he really did turn it around. And so there's nothing in this book that should scare you away. He's not professorial. There's no big words. It's it's a, a really compelling story of a guy who figured it out and got through it. Um, you talked about the the decisions you have to make to stop using and you you've been clean for how many years now so it's been uh 34 35 years i wonder a long time that it is a long time and congratulations i wonder if if those kinds of decisions are similar to the the decisions you made when you came into some of these companies and and did turnarounds so if you know and you by the way you were a small business owner even before you became a ceo if if you're a business owner or you are an executive and things are jacked up and certainly they are right now for a, a lot of businesses they can't staff them up you know there there are a variety of issues out there give me a couple of decisions you think that a, a good leader an unlikely leader like yourself you got to make to do a turnaround in a business that's going south so um so there are some tough decisions you have to make. And, and, and one of the first decisions is you got to get the wrong people off the bus and the right people on the bus. And there's an analogy there with your drug use. You had to separate yourself away from the wrong people on the bus. After, oh, yes. Yes, that's true. All day long. Yes. Um, yeah. In fact, I actually... When I got clean, I actually moved out of L.A., moved to Chicago to separate myself from some of that. Get but far away from that bus. You got it. You got it. In, in, in this case, you, people who are negative, people who can't see your vision, people who are not willing to follow your vision, uh, they just become a cancer in the organization. And and not getting them off the bus, not making the decision to make a change, um, you, you're actually making a decision which will end up destroying your organization. So, you know, the first move is, is, is get those people off the bus. Makes the, sense. Uh, the second move, and most important, is you really, really have to create a clear vision, a vision that's very, very strong, that you could sell to your people. And we could talk a little bit about influence in a little bit if you want, but, but you have to have a strong vision that, that people will follow. And right. you have to have buy-in from your people so that they will follow where you're going. Um, I tended to create mantras. I was a big believer in mantras. So every year, depending on what I wanted to do with the organization, that would be the mantra. I had one year it was a uh, uh, step up so others can step in, you know? And, and so I wanted to create promotions and right. I create a lot of promotions. And so I had that mantra or there was another one where we changed our goal uh, from a hundred million to 250 million. And so the mantra that year was think big, you know? And so it's just you, you try to create a rally point around your vision and a mantra for that, and then you start moving forward on it. Again, applicable to your addiction. You know, yeah. you've got to have a simple, clear goal. 
your simple, clear goal was to get clean. And then you go into business. And, and by the way, I, I don't want to gloss over that you were just talking about going from $100 million to $250 million. These are big companies that uh, Roger Smith wound up leading for many years. Big names you've heard of like Liberty National and uh, American Income Life Insurance. Um, early on in the conversation, you talked about sales. And, and sales has this, this stigma attached to it. You know, it's almost a dirty word. Nobody wants to be sold to and don't be too salesy with me and all that. But sales and, and influence, I, I've always thought, get, get a, a bad rap. If, if you're a really good salesperson, you're helping solve a problem for someone else. And, and sometimes to get to that point, you do have to uh, use powers of influence, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's it. Sales does have a bad connotation attached to it, but the reality of it is, is that what it should be is a win-win situation. That's right. The, 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 the company has to win. The shareholders have to win. The salespeople has to win. And most importantly, the customer has to win. And if you can have all those going on, then, then you've got a good thing. Uh, I do think it kind of brings up the point that as a salesperson, it's up to you to shore up your belief system. Got to believe in what you're selling. Well, you got to believe in what you're selling. You got to believe in the company. You got to believe in the leadership. You got to believe in yourself. Right. And if any of those is missing, it's like a crack in the foundation. And it keeps on getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and it creates doubt within yourself. So, you know, it's up to you to shore that up. It's up to you to make sure if you don't understand the reason why a company is going in a certain direction, you know, then ask them, ask the leadership, say, why is that happening? Help me to understand the purpose of this so that I could rally around it to be the cheerleader on it. So, You said something interesting in the book. that, that I it raised my eyebrows immediately. Um, you know, it, it's an old business axiom, uh, impersonal axiom. You know, you don't don't burn your bridges. I've been hearing that since I was a kid. And you say the exact opposite. But there's a twist there. You say, "Listen, I disagree. Burn them all. Burn all your bridges." But what do you really mean by that? So, and I'm not necessarily. You know, we we've heard that. We've been taught that. Don't burn your bridges. I, I'm not necessarily talking about relationships here. You know what I'm saying? Burn all your bridges. Though you can burn them if you want. But what I'm saying is that we end up coming across what seems like insurmountable obstacles. And, and so we end up having in our back of our mind a plan B or an escape hatch. It's like, well, if this doesn't work, I'll do plan B. And unfortunately, most people end up taking the easy way. You have no other path to go except forwards. Yep. And, and, and if you move forward, you're going to overcome. You'll go over the obstacle, around the obstacle, go through the obstacle, but you'll figure out a way to do it. And through perseverance, you're going to find success. So, yeah, I, I say burn every damn one of them. Man. <laughs> But, you know, and I buy into that. I will tell you, I work with a lot of entertainers, a lot of famous people. And if you talk to most of them, they'll tell you, you know, there's nothing else I could do. 
I got to sing because that's my life. The ones that make it will tell you that, you know, there's nothing else that I was passionate about. This, this is the thing. There was no plan B. So right. they burn their bridges and that's how they get to be the George Clooney's of the world. You yeah. Know? Yeah. All day long, all day long. Yes. This book has so much in there. There's so much about uh, having, you know, multiple mentors and how important that is. There's some of Roger's characteristics of leadership. Uh, he's got a great piece in there about uh, being a dragon slayer. Um, but the stuff that'll get you in your heart is that early struggle that he came through and how he was able to turn his life around. The most unlikely leader from Roger Smith. Thanks for spending time with me today. Thank you so much, Burke. I really appreciate it. It's really. a great read. You're going to love it if you know someone who's in, uh, in the throes of addiction. You may want to pick it up. If you know someone that needs uh, some motivation in their business life, pick up the most unlikely leader from Ballast Books and bookstores everywhere and online as well at Amazon.com, wherever you get your books. Roger Smith, thank you for being here today. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate you. Thank you also to our show sponsor, SpeakerMatch.com, world's largest online virtual speakers bureau, and our pals at Zoom into Books and Headline Books for the video platform today. Be sure to download and subscribe to our Big Time Talker podcast wherever you get podcasts at Apple iTunes, Spotify, Blog Talk Radio. And thank you so much for being here today. Wherever you go, whatever you do, make it a great day. Bye, everybody. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.